Let's get started. <clears throat> As is fitting and appropriate, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for Christmas, for the season, for all that it entails. May our hearts be gladdened. May our hearts be focused on you. Help us to see more clearly the miraculous work that you have accomplished on our behalf. Thank you for the, the meeting of heaven and earth in the incarnation in your son, that he died for our sins. We thank you for the snow, for the provision of all the things that we need in this world, water being one of them. We thank you for the things that we don't even know that you provide. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. Uh, let me just say before I start, a shameless plug. If you haven't gotten a Christmas tree yet and you need one, go down to the Boy Scout lot over there by the Black Bear Diner. We've got a f some, we still have some good ones left, and today is our last day of sales, and we'll make a deal. <laughs> yes. So, uh, okay. So, when I initially was thinking about what, I, I wanted to tie one of the Sunday school classes into Christmas, just because I like to do that. And uh, so initially I was thinking I would totally depart from church history, and we would, I want, what I thought would be a good exercise, and what I still think would be a good exercise was, was to discuss and differentiate all the Herods in the New Testament, because, I mean, there's Herods all over the place, and it's nice to just draw some clear lines to know who is who, because it's not the same Herod every time you see Herod mentioned. And that's still something that I would like to do in the future. Uh, but last weekend, last Sunday, when I finished my class and I was talking about Gregory of Nazianzus, who was one of the Cappadocian fathers, I thought, holy smokes, uh, in, you know, instead of just totally breaking path with what we, we've been talking about, I should talk about one of his festal orations, which I will pass this around in a moment, but the festal orations of Gregory are sermons, sort of sermons, uh, that he preached on important feast days of the church. So he, he preached a Christmas sermon, in effect, and he preached an Easter sermon, and this book is a collection of those. So I thought, well, let's just continue on talking about Gregory of Nazianzus, and we're going to talk about his, what we call Oration 38, which is on the Nativity of Christ. So I will send this around, and you guys can just glance through it. And uh, if you're interested, and if you're not, that's okay. Um, but I think this was, will be a good exercise in just getting some exposure in on you know in what somebody who is one of the great teachers of the church to whom we owe an immense debt of gratitude because well I'll get to why we do that in a minute so um, a word of I don't want to say warning but clarity this particular book is produced by the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Greek Orthodox Church so some of the things may look a little different uh, for example, Easter is referred to as Pasha, and, and things like that. So, but don't let that scare you off. Uh, the truths that are taught inside here by Gregory are just as foundational to the Protestant Church as they are to the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. I mean, this is part of when the Church was the Church, and the teachers of the Church were universally recognized and you know, the great reformers like Calvin and, and you know, and, and so on, all point back to Gregory of Nazianzus as well. So I'm just saying don't let the, the orthodox flavor of the outer book and things like that scare you off. So, um, but it's, it's actually, it, it's a great, uh, th this book is part of a series that collects uh, writings from the early church fathers. And you'll see it's called the Popular Patristic Series. 
And patristics is what we call the study of the early church fathers. It comes from the Latin word pater, which just means father. Um, so anyway, so today we're going to talk about Gregory of Nazianzus and his what we call Oration 38, which happens to be his sermon on the Nativity of Christ. And it, it requires a lot of work to read it in some ways. And I've included the entire text in the notes. And we're not going to read the entire thing today. I'm going to just zero in on, on certain parts. But Gregory's writing and his preaching are profoundly dense, filled with Bible and theology like few have attained. In fact, Gregory is by the, has historically by the church been referred to as the theologian. There's only one other person in the history of the church that has borne that title. Does anyone know who that is? Who? No? It's the Apostle John. He is called the theologian. And why is that? Because when you read his gospel and his letters, he is absolutely preoccupied with the per who God is. With he has a what we call a high Christology. He is he is consumed by the deity of Christ and and connecting the Father and the Son. And as we'll see today, Gregory's writings are uh, equally filled with that. He is consumed by that. Where this is supposed to be a Christmas sermon, most of his sermon is not going to be about Christmas. He gets there, but it takes him a while because he is just overwhelmed and overflowing with a desire to preach who God is in his fullness, as it should be. Um, <clears throat> so, just a little more about Gregory before we, we dive into the text. Um, he is, and I talked about this last Sunday, he is one of what we call the Cappadocian Fathers, who were the three great leaders of the church from the part of the Roman Empire called Cappadocia. And the others were Basil, who was his co college roommate, in effect, and the other was Basil's younger brother, Gregory of Nyssa. So, and, and they are, their importance is, they are important for a lot of reasons, but one of the main features of their importance is they picked up the mantle from Athanasius, and they carried his teachings of Trinitarian doctrine forward in the face of great opposition, and not just, in, in some way, not just opposition from the Arians, but also opposition now from the emperors. The sons of Constantine and his successors were avowed Arians. And so while the church had not preached Arianism uh, naturally, it was now being imposed on the church because the emperors were involved in church affairs. And so it's in the face of this that uh, Gregory is uh, going to contend and as we talked about last week, too, he, he's going to move to Constantinople, which, in which he found not a single Nicene church. It was entirely overrun by Arianism. I mean, that was the seat of power where the emperors were. And because of that, all the churches had Arian pastors in them. And so the, the heretics were running the show, in effect, in the, in the, the, the center of power for the empire. And Gregory is going to go there, and he is going to start, in effect, a home church that ultimately, through the truth that he preaches there, is going to spread throughout the city and ultimately bring about a repudiation of Arianism that will lead to the second ecumenical council of the church and the final form of what we call the Nicene Creed. They didn't change anything from the first creed, like none of the language in the first creed was altered, just a few lines were added to further clarify exactly what was being said. So, Gregory is the, is the, uh, the great architect of this, and, and this final theological repudiation of Arianism. Is Arianism dead? No, it's, it's still here. So, um, 
even groups, yeah, hold, hold on, let me finish my thought. Even groups here in Mount Shasta that associate with the color purple, let's just put it that way, the, the, you know, I am groups and things like that, they are not Aryans in the traditional sense. Jehovah's Witnesses are Aryans uh, theologically. I mean, they, their pedigree is, is, their theology is almost identical to the early church Aryans. But even the, the New Age groups here in town, they are spiritually akin to the Aryans because they make the fundamental error in that, and, and Gregory is going to address that in here, in that they transfer worship from the Creator to the Created. And what do Arians teach about Christ? But he was the first created thing. And so not only are they denying the divinity of Christ or the deity of Christ, but they're also transferring their worship away from the Creator and to the created thing. So this this is a tendency that is natural to fallen man. So, and Gregory is, is zeroed in on that. Karen, you had a question? Sure. Well, the, the basic tenet of Arianism is that Jesus, that there is no trinity, that there is the, only the Father, and Jesus was the first crea- thing that the Father created, and that through him then all other things are created. But as Arius liked to say, there once was a time when Christ was not. So he is not eternal. In, in eternity past, there was a time when, according to Arius, when Christ did not exist. So, yes, and that's what Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. But in, in sundering the triune God and saying that Christ is the first, as they would say, the firstborn of all creation... In saying that, I mean, they're looking at those lines from Paul and other places, and they're saying, well, this is how we interpret that, and they're isolating it from other things in Scripture that inform more properly what that means. But they're looking at that and saying he is created, and then they are worshiping him, which, if he is created, is no different than worshiping Baal, because you are worshiping the created thing and not the creator. So, that's... That's the fundamental danger of Arianism. It's very subtle in how they're doing it, but ultimately there's no difference. And Gregory is tuned into that to the nth degree. Um, So, moving on then. Um, There's a couple of terms, and you'll note on the first page of the notes I have a little important terms section. Uh, There's three things that I want to address uh, very quickly. One is that this oration is in the form of what we call a panegyric. And a panegyric was a a poem or a speech that was typically, uh, that was very typical of the age in which it was written, in that it is lauding some great person. So, uh, one of the most famous collections of panegyrics, it's called Twelve panegyrics, was written by various people uh, lauding the emperor Constantine. And so they're saying how great he is and extolling the works that he's done. And this isn't in a bad way. I mean, this was typical of just how you honored a famous person. It's like, you know, uh, instead of giving a, uh, having a dinner in honor of someone, when you give them an award, everyone would go into the throne room or whatever and a poet or a senator would come forward and offer a panegyric to this person. So they, but a panegyric has a particular structure. And so that classical structure, and we'll get to that structure in a minute, uh, is the structure of this oration. I saw your hand again. 
Not necessarily. So, like I said, there's a specific structure to a panegyric. Um, for example, well, I'll get to that in a minute. So, the two other words are, and I'm sorry they're big, but this is just the way it is, uh, is anamnesis, and that is a presentation of an event so that the listener or the reader can participate in that event as a present reality. I know that sounds crazy, but let me, I'll simplify it. Passover is an anamnesis. In the celebration of that event, the Jews are recognizing the salvific work of God as a present reality in their lives. Were they present at the Exodus? No. But is God still, let's say, up until the time of Christ, you know, was God still saving people that had faith? And, and the celebration of a Passover was a demonstration of that faith. Yes. So during the Seder, when they did certain things that are supposed to remind them of certain things, they are making the work that God had done in the past a present reality in their lives. Does that make sense? Okay. So even though this is a big word that sounds strange, it's, a, it's something we're familiar with. So, and it's a concept that is, is rooted in the Old Testament, and it's also something that was common in Greek and Roman culture as well. Yes. Yes, it would. Absolutely. Uh, both of the sacraments would fit into that category. Um, so, the reason this is important is because Gregory is going to use anamnesis throughout this oration. He is going to be presenting or recapitulating these events so that the hearer is participating in them and making the reality of what was accomplished through them part of their present reality. So, I mean, this is something that we do here in church. We just don't use this name uh, to identify it. And lastly, the word is mimesis, which is, this is the word mimic comes from. So, I mean, this, it's a simple concept, but it's the presentation of, of somebody's actions as a role model worthy of emulation. So, you know, we are to emulate Abraham or David or Christ. And so much of what Gregory is presenting is intended to function as both of these things. So I just want to make that very clear. Okay, second page. Uh, okay, I have a very brief outline. So there's eight chapters in this oration, or that's how we've broken them down now. Uh, and, <clears throat> oh, wait, I'll go back, I'm sorry. First page, again, section B. It says there are seven, direct, uh, seven books of the New Testament and, and four books of the Old Testament. Those are direct drawing attention back to, the, to those passages. Um, so that, that's not, those, it's not a direct quote, but those are directly pointing, see where Isaiah says this, see where John says this kind of thing. But in terms of the, the amount of scripture that Gregory actually incorporates into this is, is far, far greater. There are actually, he references or alludes to in, in the content and the principle of the content to 18 books of the New Testament. So he is incorporating almost the entire corpus of the New Testament into this. The only ones he's not referencing are 2 Thessalonians, 2 Peter, 2 John, and 3 John. Everything else, at least in one line, is referenced. In many, like the Gospel of John, there's like 23 references to the Gospel. I mean, it's, so, it, it's drenched in Scripture. There are seven books from the Old Testament referenced in this. And I think, depending on how you wanted to how far you wanted to push it. I think you could say there's actually far more than that 
Uh, and in some cases, things that he's saying are tying two or three or four Old Testament and New Testament books together into one statement. So they're not quotes. He's not directly quoting. That's why I say that it's limited in terms of the direct statements. But he's alluding, and we'll talk about some of these, where he makes a statement that we would never think is a reference to Scripture. But every word he's saying is weighed out. And there's a reason he's saying it. And I'll point out some of those as when we start reading it here in a minute. So, uh, just really quick about the outline, and, and I think this helps give, give what's going on in the, the oration a little clarity. Um, the outline, the structure of this is typical of a panegyric. So there is an introduction, a central narrative, and a conclusion, or an epilogue. And in the central narrative, there is a statement of origins, a statement of acts, and then a comparison against something that may be uh, an enemy or some, a principle that stands in opposition to something. So just using Constantine as an example, uh, one of the panegyrics in that collection of 12 says that his father was a, a the son of an illegitimate son of a previous emperor. And what that's doing is it's, it's establishing his pedigree as being imperial rather than from humble origins. And, you know, in a comparison, he's saying Constantine is this, whereas Maxentius, one of his enemies, is bad. So he's drawing these comparisons. That's typical. The reason this is important is because there are some sections where, like, you are thinking, what on earth does this have to do with Christmas? But what he's doing is following this, this typical structure. And so when he's talking about the origins of God, he's actually contrasting, and we'll get to this in a minute again, he's contrasting the origin of God, which is that he has no origin, he is unoriginate, with the pagan gods. You know, where, where did the goddess Athena come from? Well, she sprung whole from the head, a head wound of Zeus. You know, there was a time when Athena was not. She is not eternal. She is not eternal in the past. She is not eternal in the future. What about the other Olympian gods, Zeus himself? Well, they were born from and overthrew the Titans. You know, so there was a time when the gods weren't even the gods. There were other gods before them. And, and Gregory is contrasting because he's still living in a world where, where Christianity is the preeminent religion, but by no means is it a majority religion. And it's only preeminent on the basis of now the emperors are espousing it or some heretical form of it. So that he's still he is contending against everybody. He's contending, and we'll, we'll see this in the text, he's contending against the pagans, he is contending against the Jews who are denying that Christ is the Messiah. He is contending against, you know, the traitors in the camp or the fifth column, the, the Arians that are inside the church, so to speak, but also corrupting it. So he is beset by enemies on all sides, and so he is contending against all of them. <clears throat> so, uh, but then when you read it, uh, chapters 9 through 13, that's really the meat of the sermon. And, and chapter 13 in particular is, is the heart, it's the core. And I'm going to read chapter 13 in its, in its entirety. So I won't read these chapter summaries that I wrote. These, these are just for your own edification. If you re read this thing, you can read it later. Um, so let's turn to the third page and to the oration itself. And I want to, I want to read sections of this, and then I want to pause and just talk about certain things or, or make some points. So I'm not going to read the whole thing, and, but I would encourage everybody to, to do so. There are some phrasing or terminology that may seem a little alien to us, but don't let that scare you off. The, the, the truths in here are, are profound. So, uh, so let me begin with chapter 1. 
And, and again, this is a Christmas sermon. So, Gregory begins. <clears throat> Christ is born, glorify him. Christ from heaven, go out to meet him. Christ on earth, be exalted. Sing unto the Lord all the whole earth, and that I may join both in one word. Let the heavens rejoice and let earth be glad. For him who is of heaven and then of earth, Christ in the flesh, flesh, rejoice, rejoice with trembling and with joy. With trembling because of your sins and with joy because of your hope. So, and then he goes on to make a reference to uh, the virgin birth. And he says, O you matrons, live as virgins that you may be mothers of Christ. That may sound strange to our ears. I assure you this is not from a time when Mary was elevated to the status of near God. That is a mimesis. He's saying, women, even if you have had children, seek to be humble and wise like Mary. I mean, she, is still, she may not be as we as the Catholic or the Orthodox Church revere her, but she is still a woman of, of great uh, reverence that we should respect and, and seek to emulate. So, um, then he goes on, and the whole second chapter is both, the entire thing is both anamnesis and mimesis. So, but he, the way that he phrases things is, fantastic. Let me, uh, let me read some of this. Again, the darkness is past. Again, light is made. Again, Egypt is punished with darkness. Again, Israel is enlightened by a pillar. A pillar? What is that referring to? Well, that's like, yeah, like an exodus. So this is what I mean. It's not necessarily quoting, but there are many, many references to what's going on in, in Scripture. The people that sat in the darkness of ignorance, let it see the great light of full knowledge. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The letter gives way. The spirit comes to the front. The shadows flee away. The truth comes upon them. Melchizedek is concluded. It means the final high priest of the order of Melchizedek has come. That he that was without mother becomes without father without mother from his former state, without father of his second. I think that's really good. As the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, he has no mother, but he has what? He has a father. But as man, he is born of the virgin. He comes to this world. He who had a father but no mother comes to this world and has a mother but no father. So you have this great contrast that's emphasizing his full deity and at the same time his full humanity. But he does it in such a way that, that's really poetic. <clears throat> um, skipping down, he says, uh, towards the end of that second chapter, he says, Let the Jews be offended. Let the Greeks deride. Let heretics talk till their tongues ache. Then shall they believe when they see him ascending up into heaven. And if not then, yet when they see him coming out of heaven and sitting as judge. So all those who surround the church that are contending against it ultimately will submit. And he goes on and explains what the present festival is about um, After the first two sections, he then goes into a, a lengthy explanation through chapter 6, explaining why they're celebrating this and the superiority of Christian festivals over pagan festivals. So that may not have as much relevance to us, although I think there is still wisdom to be gleaned in all of that. But then we get to chapter 7, and... Uh, that is where the meat of the text really begins. And so 7 and 8 are both, they form a, a unit. And this is where he's talking about the origin of God. Now he's not talking about the origin of the incarnation. 
he's talking about the origin or the lack of origin that God, the triune God, has. And again, this is uh, a polemic against the pagan gods who have origin. There are not one of the pagan gods that doesn't have some kind of origin. Not one of them is eternal. It is, you know, so whether it's Mithras who, or Kibbele, who are pagan gods from Asia Minor, or Baal, or Marduk from, you know, the, from uh, Phoenicia, or Babylon, or if it's Zeus, or Mars, or, you know, Zeus or Ares from the Greek pantheon, none of them are eternal. None of them are unoriginate. And so that's what Gregory is really pointing to, is God is God beyond all boundaries, beyond all time. In fact, he says, he opens it up, he says, God always was, and always is, and always will be. Or rather, God always is. For was and will be are fragments of our time and of changeable nature, but he is eternal being, and this is the name that he gives himself when giving the oracle to Moses in the mount. So if you ever wonder why God names himself Yahweh, what does Yahweh mean? I am. He is. He's not what he was. He's not he will be. He just always has been is. He always will be is. He is neither past nor present. He is. I am. So that, that is, that is uh, a great pithy but deep explanation of his name. Um, dropping down to the end of chapter 7, he says, The divine nature is boundless and hard to understand. And all that we can comprehend of him is his boundlessness. Even though we, one may conceive that because he is of a simple nature, that means uncomplex in the sense that he is boundless, he is therefore either wholly incomprehensible because we cannot comprehend infinity or perfectly comprehensible because of this one feature that we can identify in him. For let us further inquire what is implied by this simple nature, for it is quite certain that this simplicity is not itself its nature, but just, here's the key part, just as composition is not by itself the essence of compound being. So he's saying we can know that God is eternal, and that is, that is a, a simply identified feature of who he is. But that is not the totality of who he is, just as we can look at ourselves and say we are composed of all of these attributes or these things, but is that the totality of who we are? No, there is more to us than the sum of our composition. Just as there is more to God than, this, than, than what we can perceive as him consisting of, which is eternal. Okay, so... Um, and I don't mean to harp on this, but he, he, he brings it up again, and this is a, in section 8, he's about halfway down, he says, and I, I hope it's helpful, I broke it up so that the sections alternated with a gray background, just so you can kind of see the, the total section. He says, this, however, is all I must now say about God, for the present is not a suitable time. What he's saying is, I've talked enough theology about the Trinity, you know, the, the full nature of God, it's time to start focusing in on the incarnation is what he's saying because this is about Christmas. Let's talk about Christmas. He says, This, however, is all I must say about God, for the present is not a suitable time, as my present subject is not the doctrine of God, but that of the incarnation. But when I say God, he's just ending his conclusion here so everyone knows exactly what he's talking about. I mean Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For Godhead is neither diffused beyond these, more than three, so as to bring in a mob of gods, nor yet is it bounded by a smaller compass than these, so as to condemn us for a poverty-stricken conception, poverty conception of deity. 
one God, no persons. Either Judaizing to save the monarchia, the, the, the one God, or falling into heathenism by the multitude of our gods. For the evil is on either side is the same, though found in contrary directions. So in the full oneness with no three persons, you have error. That's where the Jews are. Whereas if you have more than three persons in one God, where all the pagans are, the error is the same. You've moved away from the truth in equal distance, but in opposite directions. And so he just wants everyone to stay focused on, on what the truth is. Okay, <clears throat> moving on, section 9. Section 13 is really where the meat is going to be. So at the end of section 9, I thought it was interesting how he says, uh, but I am obliged to stop short of saying that and to conceive and speak of them only as difficult to move because of him. Who for his splendor is called Lucifer, but became and is called darkness through his pride. And the apostate hosts who are subject to him, creators of evil by the revolt against good or are insiders. What's that a reference to? I mean, obviously that's the Satan, it's the enemy, but what part of scripture is that coming from? That's Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. That's what we call the great I wills in his pride, where he says, I will ascend the mountain. I will do this. I will do that. And he ends it with the, the greatest of them. He says, I will be like the most high. And that's echoing back to the garden. That's what each of us say in our sin is, I will usurp the place of God and do what I want to do, not what God wants to do. So, okay, skip ahead to 13. This is really the, the crux of his argument. This is, this is great stuff. But all of, so between 9 and 13, what he's doing is recounting now uh, the creation of the spiritual world, the creation of the physical world, then the creation of the meeting of those two things in Christ, I mean in in humanity, in that we are composed of flesh, but we are animated by the Spirit of God. So the, the things that he creates have, have been met in that, but are, going, but are then corrupted and fallen. And so a, another meeting of, of God, of spirit, and of the material world, of the flesh, is then needed to correct that. And that's what section 13 is going to address. I want to read this whole section, uh, the whole thing, and then I want to, I'll break it down. So, but here at the beginning, he's talking about humanity in our fallen state. So he says, And having first been chastened by many means, because his sins were many, whose root of evil sprang up through various causes and at sundry times, by word, he's so chastened by many means, so by chastened by word, by law, by prophets, by benefits, by threats, by plagues, by waters, by fires, by wars, by victories, by defeats, by signs in heaven, and in signs in the air, and in the earth, and in the, in the sea, by unexpected changes of men, of cities, of nations, the object of which was the destruction of wickedness. And at last, he, humanity, needed a stronger remedy, for his diseases were growing worse. Slaughters, adulteries, perjuries, unnatural crimes, and that first and and last of all evils, idolatry, and the transfer of worship from the creator to the creature. That's pointing back to that, I will be like the most high, and that, that desire to usurp by the created the role of the creator. As these required a greater aid, so also they obtained a greater. 
and that was and that was that the word of God himself who is before all worlds the invisible the incomprehensible the bodiless beginning of beginning the light of light the source of life and immorality immortality the image of the archetypal beauty the immovable seal the unchangeable image the father's definition and word came to his own image and took on him flesh for the sake of our flesh and mingled himself with an intelligent soul for my soul's sake, purifying like by like, and in all points except sin was made man, conceived by the virgin, who first in body and soul was purified by the Holy Ghost, for it was necessary that procreation be honored and that virginity be honored more, he came forth then as God with that which he had assumed. One person in two natures, flesh and spirit, of which the latter deified the former. O oh, new commingling, O oh, strange conjunction, the self-existent comes into being, the uncreate is created, that which cannot be contained is contained by the intervention of an intellectual soul or rational soul mediating between the deity and the corporeity of the flesh. And he who gives riches becomes poor, for he assumes the poverty of my flesh, that I may assume the richness of his Godhead. He that is full empties himself, for he empties himself of his glory for a short while, that I may have a share in his fullness. What is the richness, riches of his goodness? What is this mystery that surrounds me? I had a share in the image, I did not keep it. He partakes of my flesh, that he may both save the image and make the flesh immortal. He communicates a second communion far more marvelous than the first, inasmuch as then he imparted the better nature, whereas now himself partakes of the worse. This is more godlike than the former action. This is loftier in the eyes of all men of understanding. So this is, a re, this is a tour de force of the work of the incarnation. It, it, to me, it's, it's marvelous. So I want to I address a few things in this. So <clears throat> uh, first, again, he is calling out the Arians. If you drop down to the fifth line and into the sixth, he says, "In that first and last of all evils, I draw idolatry, idolatry, and the transfer of worship from the Creator to the creatures. That's all idolatry and all sin. But again, that transference from worshiping God to worshiping the first created thing is at the heart of Arianism. But he goes on. He says that." And that was that the word of God himself, who was before all worlds, the invisible, the incomprehensible, the bodiless, the beginning of beginning, the light of light, the source of life and immortality, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, that's all language that is in or very similar to what's in the Nicene Creed, where he says light from light, true God from true God, emphasizing the the essential oneness of the essence of who the Father is and who the Son is. So, I mean, that's, that's the heart of what, Chalce, of what Nicaea is. When you see the Son, who do you see? The Father. So when you see the Son, you see the Father. He is the radiance of His glory. He is the exact imprint of His nature. So He is the the true God from true God. He is the light from the light. So he, he is incorporating the creed or the concepts in the creed into this. But then the, the next creed we are going to talk about, and I don't think we're going to do it the next class, but probably the next class after that, is what we call the Council of Chalcedon. And this is going to address 
the second great question that's going to confront the early church, and that is, what is the exact nature of the relationship of Christ's divine nature and his human nature? And so, and ultimately, the, you know, the answer will be given. What the apostles what have always taught is that he is fully God and fully man, because there are going to be a new crop of heresies that are going to teach differently from that. And so we call that, A, there's another creed that comes from that council, which we call the Chalcedonian Creed. And so we define ourselves, I mean, we don't use the terms in this church, but it's it's a term, I mean, it, it is still a term that theologians, evangelical theologians still use to define us. They say we are Nicene Christians and Chalcedonian Christians. If you are outside of those two creeds, you're off the table. You're not Christian. You're something else. So to be on, to be in the camp, you have to affirm those. And here, Gregory, about 70 years before that council, he is probably already seeing these false teachings about the natures of Christ coming up, and he is presciently arguing against the heretical views there. So he is saying, uh, uh, mingled himself with an intelligent or rational. Intelligent just means able, you know, reason. Like we, do animals have an intelligent soul? No, they do not have a rational soul the way people do. In other words, that's saying made in the image of God. So he's saying, uh, mingled himself with an intelligent soul for my soul's sake, purifying like by like, and in all points except sin, was made man and conceived by the virgin. And a little later down he says, one person in two natures, flesh and spirit, of which the latter deified the former. Deified, that may sound like a strange term to us. What is sanctification? What's a, a colloquial term? we use for sanctification. Well, what is sanctification? Well, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us to gradually conform us to what? The image of Christ. Well, back then, they just, they called that deification. They're not being made a God, but what they are saying is that you are being made to be like Christ. So that may seem like a crazy word to us because we'll say like, well, Caligula was a crazy Roman emperor, and the Senate deified him. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. Do you understand? I mean, we're talking about sanctification. Does that just make sure when you see deified, you know what we're talking about? Um, so, I lost my place. He says that one person in two natures, flesh and spirit, of which the latter, the spirit, deified or made more Christ-like the former. This is the new, this is, he's, he's recognizing the coming threat to the church, that there is going to be a new issue that people are going to teach other than that Christ was fully God and fully man. But why does that matter? Well, it matters because, I mean, what does Christ come to do? He comes to sacrifice himself on our behalf why are we not able to do it on our own behalf yeah and so are we infinite can we satisfy an infinite god no okay so we are unable to satisfy him by sacrificing ourselves and yet if god sacrificed something or something was sacrificed to God that was other than human, is that paying for the sin of humanity? Did the animals that were sacrificed throughout the Old Testament satisfy God eternally? No, they pushed his wrath off for a little while. They showed a demonstration of faith, but did they themselves satisfy him? No. So what is needed is both an eternal, a fully eternal, or fully God, and a fully human sacrifice. 
And that can only be achieved in one person, who is Jesus Christ. So that's why it matters. If you have Christ anything other than fully God, it is not eternal. If, it is any, if he is anything other than fully human, it's not going to pay for you and I. It's that narrow path again, that narrow path where salvation is found. So that section 13 is just rich. I mean, I could, I, I could go on and on about it. I had a lot more I wanted to say, but I only have five minutes left, and I want to address a couple more things. So let's turn to the last page. <clears throat> Okay, so now we're on section 17 and 18. And here I want to just give a flavor of how Gregory is pulling in Scripture and truths of Scripture in ways that we don't even see. So let me read the first part of of 17. And so now also, for what it's worth, now at the very end in the last two chapters, he's finally going to talk about the Christmas story. So... He says, now then I pray you accept his conception and leap before him, if not like John from the womb, yet like David because of the resting of the ark. Revere the enrollment on account of which you were written in heaven, the Lamb's book of life, and adore the birth by which you were loosed from the chains of your birth. Again, that great contrasting. And honor little Bethlehem, which has led you back to paradise, and worship the manger through which you, being without sense, like a dumb animal, was fed by the word, by the logos. Know as Isaiah bids you, your owner, like the ox and like the ass, your master's crib, If you be one of those who are pure and lawful food and who chew the cud of the word and are fit for sacrifice. What does that mean, to chew the cud of the word? Yeah, that's actually going right back to the Old Testament. And this this is so rich. First of all, in Leviticus, in 11 and 13, when it's talking about what animals are acceptable to eat, the animals have to be cloven-hooved and chew the cud, right? That's, That's what is lawful. Well, the word for chew the cud is similar. It comes from the same root word in Hebrew as meditate. So imagine a cow... You know, and how long do they do that? Well, that same word in Hebrew is Hagah, which is used twice, once in Joshua and once in Psalms. And that Hagah is to meditate day and night. And then we see in, in Deuteronomy 6.4, does anyone know what Deuteronomy 6.4 is? The Shema. Hear, O Israel! The Lord your God is one. It's the great clarion call uh, to Israel to worship God properly. But then what does he go on to say? But to teach your children, to read this and think about this all the time, to write it on your forehead, to write it on your doorpost. In other words, to meditate on it. So to chew the cud of the word. But when you read that, it's like, you know, there's some... There's a solid biblical basis for a statement like that. But, you know, you've got to make some connections. So then he, so he goes, first, I love that connection of, of David dancing before the ark as the ark is brought into, into uh, Jerusalem for the first time. And he's dancing before it. And then, and what's, what is the ark? It, it's the place where the presence of God resides in the ark so he's dancing in the presence of God 
as it's being brought into its new home. And what's the parallel to that? But, the, but John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth leaping and dancing, in effect, before the presence of God as it's being brought into its new home. It's like, that's a great connection. And who is the son of David? Jesus. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of sinew that's connecting that. But then, so, but then he goes, and he's, he's going from there to honor little Bethlehem, which has restored us to paradise. Through what comes out of Bethlehem, we will be restored to being in the presence of God. And what's in Bethlehem but the manger? And what's in the manger? The Christ. The Word, the Logos, is in the manger. And we are dumb animals. We are unable to accomplish these things for ourselves. But what is he saying to do? To go to the manger like a dumb animal and eat the food that's put before us. Well, what's the food? Well, there's the bread of life, you know, but the bread of life is right there in the manger. So like a dumb animal, go in and eat. And once you eat, what do you do with that food? Chew your cud. Meditate on it. I mean, what a great articulation of what we are to do and the Christmas story. I think it's beautiful. So to end, let me read the whole last chapter. It's, it's not that long. But as I read it, remember, he's, he wants you, he wants the hearer, the anamnesis, to make what you hear, he wants you to participate in it as your present reality, okay? So, and, and to emulate, to, to the mimesis, to, to mimic that which you hear. So, just keep that in mind. So this is how he ends then. One thing connected with the birth of Christ I would have you hate, the murder of the infants by Herod. Or rather, you must venerate this too, the sacrifice of the same age as Christ, slain before the offering of the new victim. If he, Christ, flees into Egypt joyfully become a companion of his exile. It is a grand thing to share the exile of the persecuted Christ. If he tarry long in Egypt, call him out of Egypt by a reverent worship of him there. Travel without fault through every stage and faculty of the life of Christ. Be purified, be circumcised, strip off the veil which has covered you from your birth. After this, teach in the temple drive out the sacrilegious traitors. Submit to be stoned if need be, for well I know you shall be hidden from those who cast stones. You shall escape even through the midst of them like God. If you be brought before Herod, answer not for the most part. He will respect your silence more than most people's long speeches. If you be scourged, ask for what they leave out. Taste gall for, the sake, for taste's sake. Drink vinegar. Seek for spittings, accept blows, be crowned with thorns, that is, with the hardness of the godly life. Put on the purple robe, take the reed in hand, and receive mock worship for those who mock at the truth. Lastly, be crucified with him and share his death and burial gladly, that you may rise up with him and be glorified with him and reign with him. Look at... And be looked at by the great God who is Trinity, who in Trinity is worshipped and glorified, and whom we declare to be now set forth as clearly before you as the chains of our flesh allow. In Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. And that ends a Christmas sermon. But I would encourage you to read the entire thing. And I will end there. So any questions before we... Lord, <clears throat> thank you for coming out of Bethlehem, for leading us back to paradise. I pray that we will chew our cud.
that we will meditate on your word and on the word. I pray that you will lead us forward in courage to fight for you, to proclaim your kingdom, to edify others, and to be edified ourselves. I pray that this will be a blessed Christmas. In your name we say all of these things, in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.